0: Podcast. Hey, people, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for dropping in. Thanks for lending an ear. Thanks for taking time out of your busy day to listen to the show. I appreciate it. Uh, I just want to thank our last guest, Brian McKenzie. Uh, he really, uh, <laughs> that was a very popular episode and it definitely broadened uh, the scope of our audience. So if you're new to the show because of listening to, Brian, welcome, uh, and I hope you stick around. I hope I can deliver content to uh, make it worth your time. Uh, and today, we have another great guest, my coach. Uh, my coach, since I started this, Ultra Endurance Insanity, Chris Houth of AIMP Coaching, uh, sat down with me, and we rolled up our sleeves and got into uh, endurance, multi-sport training techniques, uh, where he's coming from in terms of aerobic zone training, how he's trained me, why he's trained me the way that he has his opinions on Brian's opinions and all sorts of stuff. So it was great. Uh, he definitely knows his stuff and, you know, he changed my life and he is responsible for, Turning me into uh the athlete that I've become. So I owe the guy a lot. And moreover, he's just a he's a great guy. Yeah, a very solid, solid individual. So it was great to be able to talk to him today. And we'll get to that in a minute. I wanted to do a little uh calendar housekeeping. I'm going to be doing some traveling pretty soon. So let's see, where am I gonna be? Um March 10th. I'm gonna be uh, in Tucson at the Burger Performing Arts Center, um, speaking about plant based nutrition. If you want to find out more about that, if you're in Tucson and you want to drop in, again, it's March 10th. Go to healthyu.network.org, network.org. Healthyu, y o u network.org. Uh, March 18th through the 20th, I'm going to be in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm speaking at the College of Charleston, so I'm really looking forward to that, talking to the college kids. April 14th, I'll be at the uh, Worcester Mass Veg Fest. Uh, so if you're in Worcester or you're in Massachusetts and want to check that out, go to WorcesterVegFest.com. And then April 20th, I'm going to be in Ottawa, Canada, with Dr. Michael Greger. If you've been listening to the podcast, then uh, hopefully you listened to the episode in which I had Dr. Greger on. Uh, he was fantastic, and that was a very popular episode. He really knows his stuff when it comes to plant-based nutrition. So him and I are doing an event there uh, that's being put on by a woman named Deb Gleason who's getting out uh, all the Ottawa fantastic athletes to spend a day um, with us. And if you want to learn more about that, go to Plant Power Ottawa, plantpowerottawa.com, and that's April 20th. Um, want to support the show go to richroll.com on the podcast page or the blog page you'll see an amazon banner ad on the right hand side if you're going to buy something on amazon it would be huge if you could click on that banner ad first which will take you to amazon and then buy whatever you're going to buy uh and it'll kick a few nickels uh into our coffers and won't cost you an extra cent. So it's a great way to support the show without you having to go out of pocket or anything. Um, also we're working on putting up a little donation button on my site too, for people that just feel charitable and want to support the show because, uh, it is a huge, huge time commitment. Doing this it takes a lot of time and effort and I love doing it. Um, but, uh, you know, I got bills to pay too. So if you're feeling inclined, you can, uh, you know, throw us a couple bucks or whatever. We don't have that up yet. Uh, I'll let you know when it's going up, but it should be up in the next few days. So what else do we have? Um, the one thing I wanted to talk about before getting into uh, the interview with Chris is I've been getting a lot of uh People coming up to me saying you should start a membership site. Uh, I'm getting so many emails uh, that it has become impossible to (laughs) respond to all of them. And I really appreciate all of of you out there who are taking the time to write, uh, to tell me your story, or ask me a question, or to raise an issue that you'd like to hear addressed on the podcast. And believe me, I read them all uh, but there's just no way I can respond to all of them um as it is i you know i have to spend way too many hours every day responding to email and it's already taken up uh way too much of my life so so it's been suggested to me by a couple people like hey you should you should set, set up a membership site uh and for a very kind of low monthly price Uh, offer kind of exclusive content and access uh, for members to you and to premium content. So in other words, the idea would be to create kind of a four-wall VIP closed community uh, where uh, members could interact with each other and I could interact with them. We could do uh, spree casts on specific subject matters where I could interact uh, with the people on the call and it would only be uh, available to people who are part of this community. And that way I can focus my energies on helping the people that are members of the community um, build that community, provide exclusive video content and maybe even um, free swag, wholesale prices on products, sponsored products, child lifestyle products, et cetera. So, I'm just thinking about it right now. I don't have the solution or the the you know sort of identifiable trajectory, but I wanted to kind of put it out there and see if there would be an interest in the listeners in me doing something like this. So let me know. Uh, I'd love to hear your feedback uh, because I do want to be able to uh, kind of build this community uh, and serve the audience uh, that is coming to the podcast in the best way possible. So if you have some ideas about a membership site, what you'd like to see in it, whether you think it's a good idea, a bad idea, what kind of content um, you would would find most beneficial if you were to belong, uh, that would be great. Go to richroll.com where I have this uh, podcast episode hosted and leave a comment there. And I'll be sure to to check that out and uh, take it into consideration. So what else? Uh, You want to learn more about Julie Pyatt, my wife, and sometime co-host, go to her music site, srimatimusic.com, S-R-I-M-A-T-I music.com. You can preview and listen to her her beautiful music there. Uh, And she's on Twitter at Jaisi, J-A-I-S-E-E-D. Okay, people, so we had Brian McKenzie on uh the uh, two episodes ago and it was a very popular episode and he was given an opportunity to talk all about his his crossfit endurance program where he's coming from and what his core principles are and it was great conversation i mean i sort of expected oh we're gonna be at odds with each other or have different points of view on this you know he's got he's covered with tattoos he's got a pit bull he's super strong and intimidating and i'm like the skinny vegan ultra endurance runner guy and uh ironically we ended up hitting it off uh quite well and uh, i really liked a lot of what he had to say uh, especially in terms of of how he thinks about form and technique and functional body strength when it comes to overall performance in athletics and i think there's a lot to be learned there and a lot to be gained um, people really enjoyed the episode, and Brian and I have gone back on email a couple times uh, about trying to do more stuff together. Uh, maybe doing a, a monthly segment, or getting him on the show more regularly, or maybe finding a way for um, the two of us to to do other kinds of things together. So I'm interested in exploring that a little bit more. Um, but today, what's great about Chris Health, who's coming on the show today? is he has a little bit of a different perspective from, than Brian. And, you know, Chris has been my coach. If you read my book, finding ultra, you know that I talk a lot about him and credit him, uh, with all of my athletic success. Uh, and his tutelage has really, uh, taken me from the couch to the finish line, uh, at, you know, two ultramans and, and, Epic five. And I could not have done it without him. Um, and he, he, you know, he shares some of the core ideas that that Brian had to share the other day, but Chris is coming from a more in traditional, I guess I would say, approach to endurance multi-sport racing. Um, he's a very accomplished athlete in his own right, two-time uh, Olympic swimmer for Germany, and uh, professional triathlete uh, who has been extremely successful in his triathlon career. He won Ironman Coeur d'Alene several years ago and is a consistent top finisher at many, many Ironmans and has competed at Kona, the Ironman World Championships at Kona 12 times. And he's now 43 and he's a dad like I am and still continues to compete as an amateur age group, amateur uh, Ironman and half Ironman distance athlete. So he has some great insights on how to continue to stay inspired and push yourself and keep things fresh and also balance the rest of your life with being a parent, uh, et cetera. Um, And he coaches all sorts of athletes from the professional ranks all the way down to kind of the weekend warrior uh, and has a lot of insight to share. We're brought to you today by On. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story. But basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again go to recovery.com. Enough preface. Uh, let's get right into the interview. Thanks for stopping by and I hope you enjoy it. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Howard. This is not your first podcast, Rodeo.
1: Not podcast. I've never done a podcast you haven't? On radio Do you yes.
0: know what a podcast is?
1: Do you? Yeah. Well, yeah, I you do. Something? Yeah. No, I, I mean a lot of pe- a lot of people don't.
0: It's no, funny. I get I get, I get uh, emails like, "How
1: do I get the podcast?" Oh, you know, I listen mm. to them all the time while I'm riding.
0: I do too. That's when I first started listening to them because you can't listen to music all day. You go you go insane. Day. So, yeah. which ones do you listen to?
1: Um, I listen to some sports talk radio. Um, Dan Patrick Show is one of my go-to's. Uh, wall street journal this morning Uh and uh real time with bill maher
0: yeah i listened to that one too then you don't have to watch it on tv exactly and you're
1: all caught up on your dave
0: meyer's always giving me shit because he's so right wing you "You listen to bill maher on your headphones
1: again (laughs) (laughs) yeah so catch up on my politics with him
0: yeah well you're listening to bill maher but then you're going out hunting so you're a a dichotomy you're a you're a conundrum (laughs) conundrum so welcome to the podcast. Yeah, we're here to have you set things straight on proper training advice. Mm, I a don't lot of know. Co- lot of confused people out there. A lot of different ideas spinning around. A lot of popular fads. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of. Uh, it's not sexy to talk about basics. Mm-mm. It never is, you know. <clears throat> but if you look at the the guys that are that are the best in their respective fields, no matter what sport it is, there's no uh, not a lot of shortcuts.
1: Mm-mm. And they actually enjoy the monotony of it because they get the rhythm and their speed and their understanding from that.
0: Right, exactly. And, you know, in fairness, that's their profession and that's what they spend their entire day doing and that's their mm-hmm. livelihood. And that's not the life of, you know, the, the average listener of this podcast who's probably a dad with some kids. Oh, we're okay. housekeeping here. We're at the Georgian Hotel. That's <laughs> been podcast us, interrupt us. <laughs> More We're all towels good. Lots of testing. towels. So we just finished a, a lactate test, um, which if you read my book, <clears throat> I discussed that in detail, the importance of doing that. So Chris is my coach is insistent that every three months or so his athletes come in and get on the bike trainer and do a proper lactate test where he can pinpoint with a great degree of accuracy exactly where your fitness is and so that's how he designs your program around that without knowing that i remember when i first started working with you you wouldn't even write me a workout until i tested so i don't i don't even know what to tell you you got to test cuz i don't know who you are or what's going on until i can look at that data um so that's a huge cornerstone of your philosophy yeah
1: it is it is and you combine that with i didn't have any race results for you no so that's right have yeah type of- Hey,
0: I swam. we swam on the same swim team (laughs) back in the 80s.
1: But no data from that, no heart rate data. You didn't have any type of training data. You were just going out and doing some random stuff. So without a test, I was literally flying blind. So Mm -hmm. yeah, for sure we needed a test right to get going correctly. And then once we started a good dialogue, I got a good handle on your commentary and how you were absorbing the training and what you were observing and so on, so.
0: Right. And I think, you know, coming off of the couch and not really having any experience, um, you know, not knowing myself, like how to gauge my effort or what's what, it's sort of like the analogy I always use is when, when you're like as a swimmer, when we were kids and let's say you're doing a set of, you know, 10 times 100 on the 115 or whatever. I mean, you could tell without looking at the pace clock, you know what your time is when your finger touches the wall and you probably know what your heart rate is because you've done it a billion times, but cycling, running. These were new things for me. So it's a whole different, you know, it's a whole different ballgame of trying to get used to understanding how the body works in these new disciplines. So, I, you know, I can't, I can't, uh, overestimate enough how important doing proper testing is.
1: And so well we did one today.
0: I know we did, which I didn't want to do by the way, because I haven't been training very much. So I, I knew my numbers weren't going to be that good. So there was a lot of backpedaling. <laughs>
1: That's oh, the, the classic test fear, right? And it's just a baseline number. It's a line in the sand. And mm-hmm. it, the only way to move forward is to have a line in the sand. Right. So now we have that and get you back to where you were.
0: That's right. So let's uh let's use this as a as a kind of launch pad to get into kind of your basic training philosophy. Um at AI, AIMP coaching, you've got how many you've got like fifty athletes now? Mm-hmm yeah and they range from pro ironman triathletes all the way down to the weekend duffer right
1: complete beginners absolutely
0: mm mm-hmm. yeah and uh <clears throat> excuse me so um if you read my book you you know that i espouse the virtues of aerobic training zone 2 training the z2 philosophy and that all comes from mr howth sitting across from me and Uh, I've had a couple different people on the podcast uh, talking about a couple different kinds of training philosophies. We had Brian McKenzie on uh, last week, who's kind of coming from a very different perspective, a very high threshold, anaerobic based, uh, high intensity, strength focused approach. And Chris's approach is completely different. So why don't you enlighten us a little bit about where you're coming from on all this?
1: Yeah, I mean, for many of us, aerobic training is based also on the time we have available. Um, so if you're looking at only 30 minutes a day, we're talking a whole different training program than somebody, for example, is you getting ready for Ultraman, mm-hmm. where you had a fair amount of hours and we needed to build an engine that was getting ready for an endurance event like that. Mm-hmm. But there's also a big concern with this sport, endurance athletics, whether it's triathlon, whether it's ultraman, whether it's even long runs and marathon um, running is injuries. Mm -hmm. Um, The biggest concern you have is with injuries. If you're going to start this training and you're going to start it seriously, you want to make sure you stay injury free. And aerobic training allows you to create that platform while remaining injury free. Mm-hmm. Um, some and people, that's
0: because why because you're ramping up so slowly and allowing your body the time to acclimate
1: acclimate partially also cartilage and ligaments and mm-hmm. your body's a- entire function and platform in order to become more efficient at it um, and preparing for the rigors of what will be a larger um, platform of maybe some intensity maybe a lot of intensity depending on what you need and depending on what event you're getting ready for
0: mm-hmm.
1: so it's a It's an ideal starting point for anybody getting ready for endurance athletics. And then from there, it becomes a personal question, whether it's how you're absorbing the training, what events you're getting ready for, how much time you have available, Mm -hmm. if you're absorbing the aerobic training at all. Some people don't work well with aerobic training. And then we have to look at other options, whether that is more quality and less aerobic work or, you know completely no aerobic work. Mm-hmm. Um, it, again, it depends on the event and it depends on the mindset of the athlete and what we're getting ready for.
0: Yeah, and how much time you have. I mean, the zone two aerobic zone kind of approach that we've taken that, or that you've mm-hmm. prescribed for me that has worked very well for me is a very time-consuming Undertaking for
1: sure, it is, and you you remember a lot of times how I used to write or or tell you in the workouts. It's not about the first two and a half three hours. It's what you observe those last ninety mm-hmm. to one hundred and twenty minutes. That's where things are happening. That you only can get that far into a workout by having done the proper aerobic base and then observing. Wow, mm-hmm. how hungry am I? How did I hydrate? Was I riding at the proper heart rate because now I feel completely different than those first 90 minutes.
0: Right. And it's not about that, you know, let's say you're doing, you're building up the volume on the, on the bike and, and that last 90 minutes of that ride is the focus. It's not about crawling across the finish line. It's about stepping up the volume gradually and incrementally with the appropriate rest days and, and rest weeks so that when you get to that key last 90 minutes, you can retain your, your form your technique, you're very focused on your watts and your heart rate, and you fulfill the, the sort of prescription of what you're trying to get out of that workout rather than just like, yeah, I did it, I finished it, but you were literally falling apart those last that last hour.
1: Yep, falling apart and laying on the couch the rest of the afternoon. Right. Whereas if you're running around with your kids or you have a variety of other activities for the weekend, for the weekend and you're actually able to complete them feeling good and you did a five-hour ride prior, Mm-hmm. We know we're getting somewhere.
0: Right. And that's that's been my experience. And I think that one of the misconceptions is that you're just throwing all this volume at your athletes out of the blue. And actually, a lot of times, you know, and I can only speak from my own personal experience, but, you know, it, it, it's been about holding back and say, you know, there's like we've been we've just started up again together after taking last year off. And I'm anxious to get back at it and you'll give me a 45 minute run. And I'm like, really, you know, I can't run longer than that. And it's like, no, you know, just finish it, feel good. And then, you know, the next time we run, you'll feel good. And we'll slowly, slowly, slowly build that up. Don't worry. The work is coming, but the work is not happening now. It's just getting the body ready and acclimated for the training to come. But I remember even during super heavy training periods, getting ready for Ultraman, I would do some ridiculous weekend of Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and I'd actually feel like okay, you know, because because of all of that conscious uh, effort that went into the gradual build so that when I put in those huge days, I wasn't absolutely wrecked.
1: That's what we're getting ready for, Mm -hmm. that race simulation. And race simulation is different for everybody. Shorter events, you got to be ready for the intensity. And in your case, race simulation was... You know, get it, simulating, simulating the ultraman. race. Yeah. And we had talked about let's do 60% of the race this weekend and let's do 75% of mm-hmm. the race and so on so that you at some point were getting close to having done 90% of the race on a training weekend and coming out of it feeling healthy, injury-free, ready to absorb another load of work.
0: Right. And the confidence that comes with that, oh, I mean, was sure. the biggest thing really yeah. going into an unknown like that and knowing that I could do that. Consecutively over a period of weekends, you know, basically approximate the race distance. Yeah,
1: and um, if you can do it in training, that's the big thing. Right? Sure, of course. I mean, you're coming in a little bit uh, fatigued, and then the other aspect is that, you know, this is about recovering faster. It's about being able to absorb the workouts quicker. Um, that that you can focus more on technique and form and all the things that come with the three sports that you are doing, so that then come the next phase block of training, you're doing everything cleaner, stronger, Mm -hmm. better, recovering quicker, so that then, again, you know that you're getting stronger without doing it harder. Right,
0: right. And I think that uh, that gets into uh, another misconception, which is that you're coming from a place, or I'm espousing only this place of just doing zone two aerobic work all the time, which I guess I could see that could be an interpretation of the way that I laid it out in the book, which was not my intention. My intention was to say that that has to come first to, you know, from where I was coming from, that was the most appropriate um, kind of uh, edict to build where I was coming from to where I wanted to be in an appropriate period of time without getting injured. But now we're like five years into our relationship, right? So the training that you're giving me now doesn't look like what it looked like in 2008,
1: Oh, no. Oh, no. And, you know, the the part with aerobic training, Z2 work, as you like to call it, is the everybody- church, The
0: church of Z2. In, yeah.
1: Everybody, like, uh, absorbs it differently. Uh-huh. Some people can go two, three years just absorbing aerobic work alone, and their tests will continue to improve. They'll continue to get faster because their body's like a sponge just wanting to <laughs> absorb it. Others run out of that mm-hmm. after, let's say, six months, 18 months, 12 months, and we have to prescribe a different type of training.
0: So how do you figure that out when you're doing the lactate test? I mean, how would you,
1: you measure that? The testing is the clearest indicator for that. It shows us that despite the work we've been doing, we have not improved the aerobic and anaerobic zones that significantly. Mm-hmm. And then there's a variety of prescriptions. And you
0: know that. what? Let's say, you, might, you, you probably should just explain what aerobic zone is, what anaerobic zone is. If somebody's tuning in who's not familiar with these kind of terms and it's just sort of getting interested in maybe doing a triathlon or running or something like that. We'll get back to basics.
1: Yeah. Aerobic zone is basically your fat burning zone where you're using less glycogen, less sugar, and you are primarily using fat as a fuel. Mm -hmm. And then your anaerobic zone is your main fuel source that you're using for the, for the exercise, for the activity is going to be glycogen based. And The combination of the two is always happening. People seem to think one turns off and the other Mm -hmm. one is primarily going, but it's just what you're utilizing more efficiently in each zone. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you're going really, really hard, you're using primarily sugars, glycogen. When you're going nice and comfortable and easy, you're using primarily fat. And so... The combination of the two and how hard you're going is just dependent on what the main fuel source is, what the main energy system is you're utilizing. Mm-hmm. And so for aerobic training, most of the time you're going to be using a little glycogen and mainly fat. Mm-hmm. And then that conversion happens.
0: And what and what is the relationship of, uh, of that to what you're eating, because I think there's some confusion that if you're burning fat, then if you're eating fat, that's what you're burning. No. So, you know, illuminate us a little bit more on that, because I think a lot of people get thrown off.
1: Well, the key there is also that you're, you're, you're not going to lose the, the weight just because you're training aerobically. Now, you are creating lean muscle mass, and you are thinning out in a different way, mm-hmm. as we saw with you.
0: Yeah, my body 18-18.
1: changed completely. Exactly. Um, But you weren't necessarily getting lighter that dramatically. You um, elongated your muscles, Mm -hmm. um, created a lot more lean muscle mass. And so a lot of athletes are surprised. Despite all the training they're doing, they're not losing that much weight. But I'm mainly zone two aerobic. I should just be shedding the pounds Mm -hmm. well your body is also preparing for the rigors of this aerobic training which means retaining a little bit more water in order to go for longer rides it means creating more lean muscle mass so that you might not feel like or you might not look lighter on the scale but Mm -hmm. you look lighter in your clothes and in the mirror um, because you're getting lean leaner Mm -hmm. Um, but no and that doesn't mean you can eat you know a box of fried chicken before a long bike ride It's just a fuel source and the body has enough fat stored in it for years of exercise. It only has about two and a half to three hours of uh, glycogen glycogen stored in it. So you have to just become efficient in how you're utilizing it.
0: Right. And so if if the way I understand it is no matter how skinny you are, if you have, you know, 0.001% body fat, it doesn't matter. You, you have plenty of, fat within you know that within your stored within your body that you could go ad infinitum forever without without sort of depleting that source. So then at why that, is it that, that we that have pace. to then why is it that we have to eat when we're on the bike or what is it that you know why why is nutrition and fueling during training and racing so important if we're doing this aerobic zone training?
1: Well, for sure like I said earlier, we're always burning a combination of the two. What the primary source is If it's fat and aerobic in that case, doesn't mean we're not still going through some glycogen stores. It's Mm -hmm. definitely still supplying. And then also, I mean, you're still burning calories. And so those need to be replenished and you need to have energy readily available and replaced so that you do have the energy to continue Mm -hmm. on. Um, Fat alone will not help you. Continue right. And devices. fat,
0: actually, so, and fat won't keep your brain going either. Exactly. You need sugar exactly. for your brain, uh, or the, the mental bonk will exactly. take you out Exactly, the mental
1: bonk. But and the interesting thing is a lot of times, these days, a lot of people get enough for, to, to counteract the mental bonk with their electrolyte drinks because mm-hmm. there's a fair amount of sugars in those, right. unfortunately, these days. But the food is a longer-lasting source, it breaks down slower and we can actually utilize it for a longer period of time,
0: right? So uh so aerobic zone training and and getting your body to burn fat more efficiently and effectively really plays into kind of what what I had to learn and what became the name of the game for me, which is a focus on efficiency as opposed to strength and speed. Where efficiency is is the name of the game. And one of the most kind of quoted lines out of my book is, is something you said to me early on, which is, the prize doesn't go to the fastest guy, it goes to the guy who slows down the least. And I think that that was revelatory for me, and that seems to have struck a chord with a lot of people reading the book. So, you know, explain a little bit more about what that
1: means. Anybody can start fast. We all know that from even playing as children on the playground, the tortoise and the hare. Mm-hmm. We all learned that early on too. It's it's more about efficiently getting through the distance and all the things that can get go wrong during your race during the distance. Um, what becomes key there is that you got through it efficiently. You still have your mind and wits about you to deal with the things that will go wrong. Um, and then having the fitness to successfully complete it. Mm-hmm. The other quote I use a lot is we all want to get to the finish line as fast as we can, but using the least amount of energy. So those two are a complete contrast in terms. Fast as we can, using the least amount of energy, that's not going to work too well. Mm -hmm. But there is a sweet spot in there that if you train it efficiently and effectively, that is quite fast, but you're using very little energy to do it. Right. That's endurance athletics basically. At its core,
0: right, and as you explained it to me, what this means is through this aerobic zone training and the higher end stuff that we're going to get into a little bit. So there's no confusion about that. Um, is is really building those metabolic pathways, increasing the mitochondrial density in your muscle fibers, um, which allows your body to burn this fat more efficiently. To use less oxygen to achieve the same amount of work, et cetera, so that each pedal stroke or running stride or whatever costs you less. Yes. Is that accurate?
1: Yes. Um, the ability to carry more oxygen. Mm-hmm. I'm not willing to say yet that we'll use well, less. Well, we should
0: say neither of us are doctors yeah, exactly. here, so you know.
1: exactly. It's just more. The more pathways you have to carry oxygen to deliver to the working muscles, the better. Mm -hmm. Um, and you have heard me also say in the past it's like a big network of freeways and the more freeways you build the less traffic there will be on Mm -hmm. the freeways and so what we're trying to do at that aerobic low heart rate zone training is to build more pathways to deliver oxygen Mm -hmm. to the working muscles that when it is time to up the intensity to go harder, to race you have a bigger network of pathways to deliver that oxygen and it's there It's there. Every time my athletes are very surprised, as well as you were Mm -hmm. back in the day, that despite spending no time in the upper zones of training, you still got stronger there at your lactate threshold versus just your aerobic threshold.
0: Absolutely. And I think the other biggest thing that I noticed uh, is... For example, if I'm out riding and you you want to attack a hill, or there's a hill you want to, or you want to pass somebody or something like that, so you're going to go out of your zone two and you're going to get into a higher zone, maybe go ramp up to zone four for a short period of time for an attack or to crest a hill. Uh, the the better, the more focused I've been on the aerobic zone training, the more quickly my heart rate will settle back down and I'll recover within that particular effort and get back to a baseline where I can get back into a rhythm again. If I've kind of overstepped that aerobic zone too or haven't been focused on that enough, when I want to go hard all of a sudden, then I'm like depleted and it takes me forever to kind of settle back down and get comfortable again.
1: Yep, it's that settling back in that's the not slowing down. Right. That's the
0: key. And that's, that's efficiency, really.
1: It is efficiency and it's also maintaining control of your output at all times. Mm-hmm so that you know I can settle back into my go all day pace um, and that that is not any slower than when I started my endurance event whatever that is right
0: and so it's interesting when to talk about this and then to look at race results from you know pick any half ironman or ironman and look at the age group results and without fail it would I would say upwards of 70 80 maybe 90% of the athletes You'll look at their splits for the run portion and they'll start out real swift and then they drop off a cliff to, you know, walking. And we're talking from seven minute pace to 14 minute pace or something like that. So that is epidemic in Ironman and, and even at, even at the half Ironman distance. Um, So, you know, what is going on there? Like what are people doing wrong or, or overlooking or why is that? Why does that seem to be the biggest issue that people are facing well, I don't know if it is the biggest issue. It, it's it, just it, an observation it, that I'm making.
1: Oh, for sure. It is a, it is a big issue in the sport. And, and I say issue. It's <laughs> issue. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's very controversial.
1: <laughs> no, it's, um, it's one that highlights just the pacing on the bike and how much it costs you. Mm-hmm. Um, if you pace the bike incorrectly and it costs you too much, you will no longer have the energy needed to successfully complete the run. And what I mean by successfully completing the run, that is coming within a reasonable percentage of your training runs. Because mm-hmm. I often hear athletes at the finish line who are like, you know, usually I can run 720s all day in training off the bike. And for some reason today, I wasn't able to break eights. Well, you might want to look at your bike pacing. Mm-hmm. That's an easy way to, an easy thing to point at. It might be hydration, it might be nutrition along the way too. But oftentimes it's the pacing and it's a hard event to pace. I mean, it's a long day and you want to get carried away early. You feel good. You're rested. You're tapered. And now you have to wait six hours to test your run. I don't want to wait that long. Mm -hmm. Throwing caution to the wind a little bit.
0: Right, right. What do you think is the biggest mistake that the average kind of amateur triathlete or marathoner runner makes in, in training and in racing?
1: The classic going too hard on easy days and going too easy on hard days. Mm -hmm. So they're constantly training in that gray zone of no improvement. Um, If you want to have the clear, dramatic improvement in your training, whether with aerobic or anaerobic training, you need to make a conscientious decision to go hard on your hard days and really easy on your easy days. Mm -hmm. You can't always go in the gray zone in between those two. It's called no man's land for a reason, because it leaves you with one speed, the one speed syndrome, right? where you're not going to improve as much as you like. You notice that in January, February, given a normal triathlon season being in the summer, you're going as fast as you go in June. Why? Because you've been training at the same thing yeah. the whole time. And it usually comes because easy feels too easy, so therefore it can't be right. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you're not rested enough and fresh enough to go hard enough to really have that stimulus mm-hmm. when needed,
0: right? So you need the discipline to go to go slow. It's a it's a it's a discipline. Just like it's a discipline to go hard, you have to hold yourself back, and that's part of part of training is resting, knowing when to rest, and treating that with the same level of respect as you treat the hard days.
1: Fourth and fifth discipline of this sport of any endurance sport is recovery and rest, as well as nutrition, Mm -hmm.
0: and particularly as you get older, for sure. Yes, right. I mean, when you're 20, it's like you can get away with a lot of stuff. So,
1: (laughs) as we know from our swimming, (laughs) I know.
0: (laughs) We should point out that uh, it's funny because Chris came into my life, you know, around the the this you know, getting involved in Ultraman and triathlon and we had some mutual friends. And when I decided that I wanted to kind of dip my toe in this world, I asked around and, and Chris's name kept coming up. So I felt like, all right, well, I was being directed to this guy for some reason. Uh, and then as we kind of got to know each other, we realized that, you know, Chris comes from a swimming background as well. And and we had both swam at the same club team. I don't think we overlap though. I'm a little bit older than you, a couple of years older than you. So I was out of there by the time you showed up. But the Curl the curl Swim Club ne- then became Curl Burke. Now I think it's called the nation's capital swim team. Yeah. And for those that 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 have some familiarity with why that name changed, then you get that joke. And if you don't, that's the subject for another podcast, yes. I think. Yes,
1: you'll have to invite <laughs> yeah. other people for that. No, yeah, <laughs>
0: exactly, because I, I could talk for hours about that. But anyway so uh and and Chris was far more accomplished in swimming than I uh, as a dual citizen of the United States and Germany he represented Germany in two olympiads right yeah. in the individual in the two hundred i m yeah uh, 400. both time four hundred i m both times so two time olympian right and we had uh and you swam with Josef Naji Naj, you say it Naj right. Nagi, Nagi, yeah. right, and had and you had swum at uh, University of Michigan too,
1: a little bit, and then for, mainly at American University, right? With uh, with when Joseph transferred in there, so you were a,
0: you were a club swimmer in New Jersey, right? At, at uh, is that where you grew? That's where you grew up.
1: Um, for when I was in Jersey, yeah, yes, I was a club swimmer in Jersey. Um, but I you grew had been,
0: you grew up in Germany too, exactly, uh-huh. sort of
1: back and forth, right? Um, my first few years in the U.S. grade school were here. In the U.S. when I say here. And then um, from 10 on in Germany, mm-hmm. swimming there.
0: And so it comes time to go to college and, or Bandcheck, I assume, recruits you. You show up at Michigan. Um, like, how no, does that work? Actually, we never way. talked about this. this I want to hear about this. the other way
1: around, actually. I was at a junior European championships and um, Joseph showed up. And he mm-hmm. was there with a few other swimmers. And he. I was had my mind set to go to SC Oh really? Because that was sort of the German path, right? A lot right. of German swimmers swam at a sea. At or Berkeley, Cal, at exactly. Berkeley. Yeah. And um I was convinced that I was just gonna follow that path. I wasn't good enough to really get the full ride that those guys were getting. Mm-hmm. But I just wanted to follow in their footsteps. And I met him and he saw me swim, Joseph, that is, at European championships, junior European championships. And he said, you know what? You should come to this place called Michigan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had no clue where it was. I went on a recruiting trip and it was summer in Michigan, Uh you know, late August, early September. And beautiful weather, great, (laughs) great climate, Uh (laughs) walking around in shorts, got there about two weeks later, the weather started turning quickly and I learned what a Midwest winter was like and right.
0: then he tried but Yos- but so Joseph was was he an assistant coach at Michigan? Yeah, under so he was. Brain check, yeah. Right. And and Joseph was a guy who uh, had been a coach in Hungary, correct? Mm-hmm. And through does he come from a science background or what exactly is He was his, a swimmer himself. He was a swimmer himself. And through some sort of trial and error process and you you know far better than I so please explain um, he had developed a revolutionary new approach to the breaststroke that involved a completely different way of approaching how that stroke works, the fluid dynamics of it and how you train. Right. I mean, it was literally like he took the breaststroke, stripped it apart and rebuilt it from the ground up and is credited uh, as being the, basically the sole person responsible for creating Mike Barrowman's success, who was another curl swimmer who went on to break the world record in, did he break it in both the 100 and the 200? or Just Just the 200. Just the 200, and was an Olympic gold medalist. And because of Joseph's, basically he was willing to trust Joseph and rebuild his stroke from the ground up and, and adhere to this bizarre new way of training, which back in the, this is 19... Eight, 89. Eight, yeah, 89, 88, yeah, eighty nine. Around then, yeah. was quite a you know, it was quite a shakeup. There weren't a lot of people like experimenting with doing new things and swimming at the time,
1: especially not the breaststroke.
0: Right, exactly. So instead of the the typical kind of frog kick, he turned it almost into an undulating, almost dolphin like maneuver where the body moved through the water much more efficiently,
1: and that helped propel the upper body forward in a wave action. Mm-hmm. You almost threw yourself over the water, but in order to keep that kick going, you had to come back down with the front end of your body in a certain way. Exactly to propulse to to propel your feet to kick that almost wave butterfly kick back again.
0: Exactly. So if you look at the top breaststrokers from pre-Joseph, it's a Soul very Olympics. Yeah, it's a very stop and start motion. It's kind of like forward, kind of slower forward, forward. You know but it's very herky-jerky. And if you look at the top breaststrokers now, it's very fluid. It's like a really nice rhythm. And, and Joseph really is responsible for that.
1: He, he said, why are we going up and down so much? Why aren't we creating that into a wave, basically? Mm-hmm. He said, there's gotta be a better way.
0: Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce All right, so Joseph meets you, a young, a, a young and handsome <laughs> upcoming swimming star. It says, come to Michigan. I will rebuild you. Yes. <laughs> I will make you Olympic champion.
1: And on, on, no scholarship on nothing because uh-huh. they already had a full plethora of, Phenomenal swimmers, European swimmers right. too.
0: And Barrowman was was there already, or yes. he was year he was a, like a year
1: older than you. He was uh, might have been two years older than me, mm-hmm. but he was getting he had just returned from Seoul where he got a bronze medal, right? Or just just outside of the medals, I don't actually remember right now. Mm-hmm. But he worked himself straight through the ranks to win that gold in ninety two mm-hmm. convincingly, um, and with it he brought along a few other swimmers that are today still big name coaches in the swimming world. Right.
0: So Joseph uh, convinces you to do this and you're looking at it like, wow, you know, I'm not going to be a scholarship athlete, but I get to train with this coach that did this for Mike Barrowman. And I get to train with Mike train with the best, right? Like it sounds like a pretty good situation.
1: Yes, it was. And when his wife, got transferred to the World Bank in Washington, D.C., he Mm -hmm. left. And a lot of us left with him to join him at Kroll Burke, where he got an assistant coaching job, as well as at Mm -hmm. American University. Right, And from there, that's where the group really developed, whether it was other brushstrokers from Spain and the US. Mm-hmm. We had a pretty crazy group there once.
0: Oh, summer. yeah. Who's this? the Sergio Spain. Lopez? Yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. As
1: well as Rock Santos. Rock Santos. Was in. Tom Dolan there too, or is he younger? He's Tommy a younger. He was younger at the time. Um, mm-hmm. And he was a two or three lanes over, and we already knew that
0: he was going to be yeah. the goods. Yes. Right. through. So, so, uh, so you leave Michigan and are, did you enroll at AU
1: or you yes. were just training full-time? Oh no, I was there. That was my uh-huh. main college education.
0: Right. So you go to school there and and how does the Olympics come about for you?
1: They come about as a German national. <laughs> I mean, does it
0: work like in the US where there's a trials meet and yes. you qualify exactly. similarly? Exactly.
1: Uh-huh. Um, you got to get top two and then there's also time standards. And uh, in some of the events, I didn't make the time standards. So therefore you can't race in that event. Right and the time standards are based off the previous year's rankings in the world and so but you get an one automatic entry at that point still mm-hmm. and they even changed that in 96 so at this point though you still had an automatic entry for if you win or get second in your event and you're within the time standard and yeah right cool I was lucky. So you went twice. You weren't lucky. It was right after the German wall (laughs) came down. Right. A lot of East German swimmers that should have been on the team um, and were better than I was um, actually had to go out and make a living. Um, Uh And their training and their time and their comforts um, in order to focus on the training went away. Right. And I was able to sneak into a few places up a few places in the results at German Olympic trials in order to qualify.
0: It seems like it was kind of a weird transition time because you're kind of getting out of the Eastern block, you know, crazy giant Eastern German women with the big necks and all of yeah, that. Like exactly. that was kind of fading into the background and it wasn't clear what German athletics were going to be looking like in the future. Right.
1: And the first combined team ever mm-hmm. in 92, Right. So there was a lot of jostling as well as a lot of confusion on the process.
0: There was a lot of East versus West
1: it's There was rivalry a lot of that. still in place. Um, everybody pretty much knew each other in the swimming world already. Like you knew who was ranked ahead of you and you knew something. Well, of course. Times. I mean, the world's not that big. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Especially then in yeah. Germany's. Yeah. Um, but. You also knew that things would shake out a little bit differently Mm -hmm. just because of the hardships of combining the two countries. And the sports system had literally crumbled in the East. Their facilities, their training, their coaches had been something that had been such an important piece of their training and life for the last 10, 15 years Mm -hmm. was now gone. Mm -hmm. And so fighting through that while preparing for the Olympic trials was challenging for them.
0: Yeah. Interesting. So you have this amazing experience. uh, And like most amateur athletes, you know, this chapter has to end and, you know, there's not, there's no money coming in. I mean, now you look at some of these swimmers and they're making big money. I mean, it's still, it's only a couple guys at the top. It's not like, you know, there are a lot of people making a living, but to see these swimmers competing at the, on the world stage, like well into their mid 30s or yeah. whatever it is is crazy. I mean, that, you know, when we were swimming, that was forget it.
1: You know, I mean, there was nobody making it. Yeah, that money. nobody made <laughs> You know, so. But it's like triathlon these days. Sure. Right? I mean, the, the top few guys, they make a good, good living. But
0: there's only a couple guys doing exactly. that. And, and I, honestly, else is I, have, them. I don't know how they do it because the travel is insane, mm-hmm. you know, to all these crazy exotic locations and then kind of you know, chasing the endless summer to train to and always moving around to be in a new place to train. These are, it's an incredibly expensive sport and the prize money is nothing. No. And the the sponsor money, unless you're a real top guy, I think there's a perception that, you know, if you have a bike sponsor or whatever, you're getting paid all this money. I mean, it's, that's not what's going on here.
1: No, but you, I mean, what in their defense of some of these top guys is, Triathlon in Australia, for example, is a completely different sport mm-hmm. from a fan base and from a support level than it is in the United States. Um, same as swimmers, right? right? And swimmers in Australia, you can't get in a cab without getting recognized. Mm-hmm. Um, and triathlon is very similar there too. They're very passionate about their triathletes. And they have a good history of really, really successful triathletes. Mm-hmm. So that feeds itself with sponsorship money and with a good salary.
0: Some mm-hmm. cases, but not in the U.S. Really, no, <laughs> no, and that won't change. <laughs> so you didn't get into it for the money. after swimming, you thought swimming. There's no money in swimming. I'm going to go on a triathlon. One <laughs> other
1: sport that make any money. <laughs> I know.
0: You and I both. I keep changing. Like I know what I'll do. I'll do a podcast. Yeah. That's where the money is. I'm right.
1: Tell both my kids.
0: Why that. am I, Why are we so passionate about things that don't feed us?
1: Well, it does feed me. Well, I should say
0: feeding, feeding in a in a finance. I guess, yeah, I know it does, of course. But yeah. I got to keep
1: knocking on wood. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, that's yeah. not something.
0: But not like uh, not like investment banking, which well, yeah. I think at one point you were you started to explore in for a little a while. bit, yeah. right? So swimming's over. Time to turn into an adult. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be that guy who's chasing you know that athletic dream into his 30s. God for God forbid.
1: Yep. I walk away from swimming and I become a, a working man. Mm-hmm. And I finish my grad school and I move to New York and get a job on Wall Street. Right. And work my way into some currency trading and for a few different firms and sort of decide from there, I'm not really going to be one of those guys. Mm-hmm. I don't fit in the same way. So I walk away from that a couple of years later and move out to California
0: how did you I mean what was it about that where you were willing to just say this is not for me? I mean was it just like the the what about it? Cuz I think one of the things that interests me and I think is you know part of kind of like what where my book is coming from is that is that sort of getting comfortable with yourself and who you are and and trying to kind of actualize who you're supposed to be or the best version of yourself and and not just settle for some job because that's what you think is the best you're gonna get. And, you know, trying to be more expressive of what it is that you wanna do here. So I you know, I I do wanna like what is it that was inside of you that said, you know, I just can't do that, I can't be this banker.
1: Well, you actually just said exactly the words that went through my head. Settling for this job, mm-hmm. I could pretty much take a look at my boss and my boss's boss and see where my career was heading. And it was a lot of money, and it was very comfortable, but it was a lot of hours at a lot of at a at a, at a large cost on family mm-hmm. and your life in general, unhealthy as well as. A, um, Seeing yourself in 15 years and the leisure suit and the big house in the Hamptons, uh-huh. but not living your life, not being a part of it, but just being dictated by work every day, not just five days a week, but seven days a week, right? Was something I say to myself for me. I was lucky early on to recognize that that was, yeah, not I think my
0: it's calling. it takes a lot of you know, sort of maturity and and self-respect and courage to recognize that and make a move. And, you know, it's, it's hard, it's, it's hard to break out of something like that. I mean, that's, you know, kind of what we're, it's like, Hey, that's, that's the brass ring, man. That's what you work for. Now, here you are. You're going to, you're going to like, you know, thumb your nose at that.
1: Yes, I did. And, you know, when you're at a, at a party or you're out to dinner with whether it's clients or friends and they ask you what you do and you tell them you're a, triathlon coach mm-hmm. or you're a running coach or an endurance coach and you sort of get the brush off of like yeah mm-hmm. okay well that's nice well what else do you do
0: right like yeah. this the adults are gonna go talk over here now exactly. and go you know entertain yourself over exactly. with the children
1: yeah. and how could you walk away from that and so there's been definitely some difficult times through mm-hmm. that
0: but, but that's an ego that's an ego thing and that speaks to where they're coming from and t- and is more about who they are than than you for sure, right
1: for sure I'm very comfortable and yeah. I love coaching um that's one thing I learned as I became more involved in coaching early on was that I truly enjoy coaching every single part of it from helping people to everybody being such an individual and needing something so different that it is actually a very stimulating profession mm-hmm. because nobody is the same. Everybody needs a different type of coaching.
0: Right. And I think also it goes beyond performance. I mean, it's not an overstatement to say that you completely changed my life. I mean, you changed my life. Like, I can't even begin to express how much my life changed because you came into it, you know? I mean, and there was a confluence of other things that were going on, but you know, the effect that you've had on me is profound and I could never repay you for that. So it's a, it's not a small thing.
1: And I'm thankful to that every day because Mm -hmm. there's people around me that I've coached all the time that come up and say, thank you. Mm -hmm. And you had a big impact in how I view things now or how you've made me healthier or fitter or stronger or mentally better prepared. Um, And those were never my That was not the intended outcome of the coaching, but because of the dialogue, because of the relationship, because of the communication between coach and athlete, we were able to tap into more than just, hey, go swim, hey, go run, hey, go bike. Mm -hmm. There's, There's a relationship that grows from coaching, and everybody, again, takes it on a different individual role within that.
0: Right, right. And it's an extension of, we haven't even gotten into, you know, your life as a pro triathlete and what that was all about. But, you know, the coaching is just an, an extension of a lifestyle that you decided you want wanted to be what your life was about. So it's very pure in that regard.
1: It is, but I've also been extremely fortunate to have some great coaches coach me mm-hmm. back in my swimming days. People who were very, very influential and meaningful to me. So I almost just carry on their coaching and teachings to me and how they coached me is how I coach my athletes currently. And what would you,
0: how would you articulate that? Like if somebody had to say, what is your coaching style or what do you think is the most effective way to teach an athlete?
1: Well, those are two different things. I'm not, I'm not ready to say yet that my coaching style is the most effective.
0: Chris is a hard ass. If <laughs> so, you want, if you want the guy to pat you on the back and tell you how great you're doing and keep going and be your cheerleader, he's, I'm not he's, the he's, guy. You know, the German side of him comes out. Yeah, he's not. He's not the guy. What for did that. we say?
1: No handshakes. Um, there's a there's a quote that some of my athletes have out there that it's quite funny because it it. it personifies exactly everything that I avoid.
0: Oh, I mean, the number of conversations that go on amongst your athletes, like even with the guys down here when we're gone on our Saturday rise is like, I mean, because you're not impressed by anything. Like some athlete will have some breakthrough and go, hey, Chris, I did this thing. You're like, yeah, (laughs) keep going. Keep going. You'll get there, (laughs) (laughs) which is good. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not a... I mean, I hope you would agree. I'm not a high-maintenance athlete. I'm no, just like, give were, me the workout. You yeah. know, I don't, I don't need you to, you know I, don't, I don't, you know, I just need you to give me the, the, feed, the honest feedback. I don't need the cheerleading.
1: And that's, that's exactly my type of coaching. I'm not a cheerleader. Right. Um, and that takes on different roles. Some people um, enjoy the cheerleading and are looking for that in a coach. And I'm not the answer to that. But
0: there's plenty of other people out there that do that. For sure.
1: And, but for me, it's more about the relationship once again with the athlete. It's not about what I give them to work out. I always say, whenever I talk to you or other athletes, don't tell me what you did. Tell me how it felt. Tell me what you observed. Tell me. What you are seeing through your eyes, because if I can understand that, I can coach you better. Not and that's just what it's
0: about because you can you can buy a plan on the internet exactly you buy you a book,
1: get a magazine so yeah. it has all they all have training plans that are very effective, but coaching is about guidance is working with somebody is helping them navigate through their day in order to have an effective workout, mm-hmm. whether that's nutrition, hydration, scheduling strategy, all those things, that's coaching. Coaching is being that person that's focused on you in order for you to effectively get through your training. Right.
0: And, and as a coach, you're also still a competing athlete and, uh, you know, you had a career, how many years were you pro, tri, pro Ironman triathlete? Only uh, about two and, a half. two and a half years. And, but during your career, you've competed at Kona. How many times? Like 12. Or 12, I was going to say seven or eight, yeah. 12 times yeah. at Kona. So, you know, an, an unbelievable amount of experience. You've seen it all. You've, you've done it all and you still have this love and passion for it. And you continue to pursue the sport as an amateur now at age 43, 43, yeah. right? Yeah. Getting ready for Cabo. In three weeks. In yeah. three weeks. And so how does you, like, how do you stay enthusiastic about, racing you know in your in your 40s having been an olympic swimmer and having you know had these super high peaks of athletic success to keep it fresh and year after year after year
1: well for me now the curiosity is how to not slow down mm-hmm. right as we get older if i can keep my speed from the past then i'll be doing pretty good as an age grouper mm-hmm. because if i can still go the complete the Ironman in times that I used to in my early thirties. That's like, a win. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So the focus of my training also for me personally is built around that. What am I doing in order for me to ensure that I'm not slowing down? And that is like we said earlier, <clears throat> recovery and rest and nutrition and understanding myself better.
0: Right. And I would imagine the kind of workouts that you're doing are, I mean, you have so many years or decades of base, you know, aerobic training base underneath your belt. And that persists. What, what, what seems to degenerate as we get older is the strength and the speed, right? So how does that, how does that play into how you create your plan for yourself? That w- how would that be different from somebody like myself or somebody who's coming into the sport, you know, later in life?
1: Well, exactly like you said. The aerobic platform is there, and now I just need to be able to sharpen the skills in order to have a successful race. Um, and now, for me, the successful skills are, in some levels, speed work, mm-hmm. but in many levels, timing my workouts right, mm-hmm. um, whether that's three days of solid work and then resting two, three days. Um, I'm also in a in an interesting cycle where because with my kids and combined with my training, that when I have my kids, I can't train right. the same way. So therefore I'm forced. And nor to should you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So therefore it allows me to train big and effectively the days I don't have my kids. And when I do have my kids, I'm resting, eating, sleeping, right. Right? going to bed before them.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> before them. <laughs> I know
1: what that's like. Good night. I'm going to bed. My eight year old is watching a movie. It's
0: eight o'clock. I know I've been there with that one. Um, Well, let's get into uh, a little bit about um, training philosophies. And I think I would be remiss if I didn't kind of talk a little bit about uh, what Brian McKenzie had to say the other day. He was a very popular guest that I had on the podcast and, and um He's sort of gotten a lot of press uh, lately, and there was a profile uh, about him and his training methods in the recent Outside magazine article, where essentially he's saying, in so many words, most multi-sport endurance athletes and marathon runners are doing it wrong. There's a lot of junk miles in there. You don't need all this aerobic training. Uh, What you need and what gets overlooked is a lot of functional body strength stuff, a lot of High intensity sprint work, anaerobic work, and he's citing these studies that show that this high intensity anaerobic work actually functions to boost your endurance more time effectively than the aerobic zone training that you know that that I love that you give me, um, et cetera. And so, uh, you know, he's coming from a completely different place. He came on the show, and you know, I I read that article, and that's why I wanted to have him on. And I was ready to kind of be very dismissive of a lot of where he's coming from, but also understand, like, I only have my own experience. I've never done his program, but he actually shared a lot of kind of interesting insights that I think you would agree with that have to do with form, technique, um, body stability, core stability, and, and all of these sorts of things. So I wondered if you could kind of weigh in on your perspective of where he's coming from, because... I don't want people to be confused. You know, oh, you have this guy saying this and this guy saying that. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do.
1: Well, first off, it's individual for everybody, right? Mm -hmm. So what you're maximizing your training time with is basically what your philosophy is with the coaching and and the training. So for example, if you believe in high intensity and you only have a limited amount of time or you've had success in the past with it, by all means, don't change what worked. Right. Um, the challenge is that for most of us that I'm coaching and working with, we're doing events that are 10, 11, 12, 17, 24, 36, right. 70 hours. 70, yeah. <laughs> 70 hours. Uh-huh. We, I coached a swimmer who swam 135 miles. Right. I mean, there's no high intensity happening at <laughs> yeah. any point in that. So everybody's individual. And everybody has different needs. But that being said, it's also what is the best use of training time? Mm-hmm. And, and then, of course, like we said early on, what is the event you're getting ready for? Um, I would challenge Brian to see how he does with that training for an Ironman, a mm-hmm. competitive Ironman.
0: Yeah, I think there's a distinction between completion and, exactly. and and being competitive, for sure. I
1: call it participating or being competitive, for sure. Um, there's plenty of marathons out there where you can run five, six, seven hours, and you're a finisher. And then there's plenty of marathons out there that have tighter cutoff times, and you have to be prepared to run more 30 mm-hmm. or faster. It's going to require a different training. Mm-hmm. Um, and across all sports, you can't compare a certain finishing time or a level of athlete to just the general populace. And what we're talking about here oftentimes is the type of training for the general populace, what works across a larger group Mm -hmm. or truly for a level that is looking to complete it in a certain time, place, percentile of finishers. Right. Right and again i can't stress enough that all this stuff is dependent on the athlete the type of training they want to do the type of time they have available and the event right mm-hmm. it's completely individual so as they call it hits training high intensity mhm it works if you have a limited amount of time for sure right but at some point whether you are a pro triathlete or you are a beginner athlete, your body is also going to stop absorbing the high intensity. And you're going to have to return at some point to aerobic platform. Work. Right. Mm-hmm. You cannot just continue at high intensity forever. Mm-hmm. Sort of the zone four for you. If you did that for the next six months, you would plateau. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity to improve is dramatically higher at the lower heart rate, at the lower intensities than it is at the yeah. upper one.
0: Right, but it's
1: more it's more time consuming. Absolutely, and know, it's no n- question about mind-numbingly frustrating for many of us mm-hmm. because we don't have the time, we don't have the patience.
0: Like I have to ride five hours just so that, you know, my body can improve a little bit during that last hour of the ride. Exactly. That seems not efficient. That is not a Tim Ferriss way of going about your life in a time effective
1: manner. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Yep. And I mean, it's, and we all have, well, we all went to, to use the quote, we've all went went pro in something other than the sport we're participating in sure. or we're taking part in. So therefore, we do have other commitments and we do have limited time. So where is that fair balance between the two? Because don't get me wrong, I absolutely believe in high intensity training mm-hmm. at the right time. Mm-hmm. I, you know, use the old example of a pyramid. The wider the base of that pyramid, the higher and sharper and pointier we can build it. If it's just a narrow little platform, we're not getting very far. Right. So we're going to build it really wide and really thick and really strong so that it can carry a huge, huge top to
0: it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, It's not rocket science. It's sort of, you know, I look at all of this and go, all right, well, what have I learned? I've learned that, you know, aerobic zone training works for me, that building an endurance base is important, becoming efficient is important. I've also learned that technique and form is important, and in order to have that, I have to have functional body strength. I can't sure. overlook that. I need core strength. I need I can't overstep that gym time and For sure. that and I and I also need to pay attention to rest and I need to pay attention to you know kind of the rehabilitative stuff like using the foam rollers and the and all these kinds of things that you need to make sure you're not getting a running injury and all of that. I mean,
1: It's a lot to think about.
0: It is. It's too much. This is what you're supposed to do for me.
1: This is, that's basically (laughs) our profession though. Right. And you communicating that to your coach, whether it's me or any athlete to their coaches, that makes them better coaches for that Mm -hmm. athlete. That's the key here. Yeah. And another thing on the high intensity stuff is you've heard me say this before too, whether it's 80, 20, 70% of your time, 30% of your time, that balance between aerobic and anaerobic work well, if you put that out into, let's say, the 20 hours a week of your training, and we said, you know what? Rich, right now we need you to be at a balance.
0: Whoop.
1: Somebody's calling. S- that,
0: right when you were making the killer point, too. You got interrupted.
1: Okay, in. <laughs> we'll let that pass. answer? Just let it go. No, we'll let it go. You'll cut this out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no edits, man.
1: It takes too much time. So, very grating. So yeah. <laughs> that's probably um. Who's calling you, Jonathan?
0: Oh, Jonathan Schwartz. Yeah. Oh, cool. You yeah. can come up. I'm gonna have him on the. I'm gonna have him on the podcast too. Yeah, you talk can... about his foundation.
1: Oh, awesome. Yeah. So the the big point here, if you take the hours that Rich is supposed to be training, and we say, let's say that's 20 hours a week, and we're gonna follow currently because based off of the prescription of the test and what we see you need in your event coming up, whether in six months or 18 months, that we want to say 80% of the time we want to be aerobic, 20% of the time we want to be anaerobic. Mm-hmm. Let's let's you know, limit the time we're spending in each zone. Well, guess what? If you take 20 hours, <laughs> that was awesome. I'm definitely not editing this <laughs> out. Yeah. You take that. 5% of the time at Z4. Uh huh. Well, over 20, 20 hours, that's a lot of time it is. working that high of a heart rate. Right. Just continuously. We're not talking a minute here, two minutes there, 30 seconds there, but we're talking a steady dosage of one mm. hour straight of Z4 work. Right. And you put that into a long ride, or you put that, that's pretty hard along with Very, work. very hard. Exactly. Yeah. So, and
0: how much time spent in the gray zone? <laughs> none hopefully none. I mean that's that's really the biggest takeaway I think and I think that's the biggest thing that, that amateur endurance athletes need to really take to heart is, is most people are spending most of their time in that gray zone and they'll reach a certain level of proficiency but they're going to plateau really quick and they're going to have a really hard time breaking that glass ceiling and they're going to have to slow it down have the discipline to slow it down and then at the appropriate time Blast it out on the hard end and, sure. avoid your, that, and avoid that middle.
1: Your coach, whoever that is, should be prescribing some high-intensity stuff, given on mm-hmm. the events you're getting ready for. But you are responsible as the athlete to be prepared for that work. Right. In order, if you're following the guidelines of the coaching, you will be ready to knock the, that high-intensity out of the park right and feel really good doing it absorb it effectively and repeat it again exactly
0: and i think i think there's this also this uh kind of momentum behind you know developing these different camps and that these two camps are at war with each other like brian is coming from this perspective and you're coming from this perspective where you're going to get in a room and it's going to be like a boxing match or something like that it's like hey, man, everyone. we're all just trying to get healthier here and get more efficient and faster and stronger. The goal is the same. And and uh, there are different approaches and ways of getting there. Um, and uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of them necessarily, nope. and, right? And, and so and we can all athlete, learn and be open-minded and learn from each other. For sure,
1: for sure. And one athlete will do really well with one approach and not well at the other.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And I know that I've just from my swimming experiences, I, I know that when I've really curtailed the volume and done a lot of high intensity work, it just I, it, it's never worked for me very well. Like I need that base, you know, maybe a lot of that is mental too, but all I know is that I, I definitely perform better when I'm doing it.
1: And I see it in my athletes all the time that some of them respond really well to volume. Others respond really well to quality. Right. And you, as the coach, have to figure that out for the athlete. Right.
0: I remember at Stanford, uh, I showed up as a freshman early season, and I wanted to be really, because like yourself, like we're similar in that, you know, I went to Stanford, I was a walk on, I was not a scholarship athlete. But I was like, "Wow, I can go here, and I'm going to have the opportunity to train with Pablo Morales, just like you training with Mike Barrowman. And it's like, you're, you know, you can go be a big fish in a small sea, or you can go be a little fish in a big sea, and find out what you're really made of, you know. And and look back and go, "Well, I tried," you know, "I put myself in the situation to be the best." Whether you end up developing in that or not, you know, you can't look back and say, "Well, I wonder what would have happened if I really took a shot." So I did the similar, the, that same thing. And it was the first time that I'd been around like that caliber of athlete and, you know, they're like racehorses, right? It's almost a different breed of human being. And I remember, uh, John Moffat who I adore. I love that guy to death. He's a, a, an, an amazing guy and an incredible swimming talent. And he just refused to do a lot of stuff that the coach said. He said, I'm not doing that. Like he, he literally would take days off all the time because he knew himself so well and he knew what his body needed. And he really only needed like some, I don't want to put words in his mouth or whatever, but he didn't seem to need the volume. And he understood himself well enough to know that that was undercutting his potential and tiring him out. And he had the wherewithal to say no, even though the coach would get furious and all of that, to do what was right for him. And I'd never seen that before in an athlete.
1: Mike Berriman was exactly the same way, Uh and it would drive Joseph bananas, as well as the swimmers around him. Here we all were working really hard to complete the full workout, and especially a guy like Sergio. Uh, And you want to
0: impress the coach. Exactly. Or a
1: guy like Sergio Lopez, who was always working his tail off. And then last set of the workout, when the switch had to be turned on Uh for time something, 200, 100 breaststroke, bam, Mike would just lie out of the gates and absolutely nail it. And everybody would become frustrated, but he just knew when to turn the switch on and when off and when right. and when it was on, it was really on, but when it was off, it was really off, but he also could tell the coaches, I don't need that. Mm-hmm. I'll do fine. I'll continue to just do my stuff here. I'll be ready when it's time.
0: And that comes with self-confidence, but it also comes with experience. You know, you For have sure. to really know your body well and what you're capable of and what you need and that doesn't happen out of the blue
1: and that's it's on the athlete to mm-hmm. communicate that especially yeah. as you're no longer in some you know 16 year old swimmer who has to listen right. to your coach on everything or else it's going back to your parents or you're looking for like a scholarship for somewhere mm-hmm. as masters athletes all of us we need to communicate to our coaches what we think we need what we're observing what we how we feel so that the better coach can come out
0: definitely And what do you think is the biggest kind of misconception uh, among the athletes that you coach in terms of sort of misappropriating their time or their focus in their daily training?
1: Well, there's a few things, but the main thing that you often hear me say and have heard me say is you can't go too easy. You can't do any damage by training too easy, but you can do damage or you increase the likelihood, the potential of doing damage by going just a bit too hard. Right. So just being patient and understanding, this is the prescription for now. Mm-hmm. If it's not working, or if it, we need to figure something else out. Communicate with me, mm-hmm. and we will then work through it and figure out what the better plan is. I've had many of athletes change their plan with me. Right. Who said, you know what? I think I need more of this, or I would like more of that. And I say, of course, let's try it. Let's see mm-hmm. what kicks out. If it doesn't work, we know. If it does work, I know. Right? <laughs> it's a win-win. Right. So it always comes back to that communication.
0: I I remember kind of in, once I got to a place where I was willing to kind of accept and embrace your approach and just and you know do as told. Um, there's a sort of security with that, and and a lot of it was like, don't be afraid to go too slow. And I had nothing to compare it against, mm-hmm. so I wasn't you know, sort of running scenarios in my mind of like, well, I should be faster or whatever. Cause I was just happy to be out doing it. But now with a few years of doing this under my belt, the thing that, that is a challenge for me um, especially after kind of taking last year off and, and not doing anything very serious in terms of training is to not be hard on myself when I look at the Garmin or I look at the heart rate monitor and the pace I'm running or the Watts I'm putting on the bike and and feel like I should be doing better than I'm doing cuz I know I've been fitter than I am in this moment and getting used to the idea of training where I'm at as opposed to training where I think I should be or where I want to be like not training at the at 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 your goal pace but training where you're at
1: a lot of athletes like to look at pro athletes or elite athletes and see or compare to how they're training or how they're preparing for a race and I always compare it whether it's to runners or swimmers because they have a very similar training approach Mm -hmm. with a lot of interval work and steady stuff like that. And none of us, whether as swimmers or even track runners or even marathon elite runners, they don't train at the the pace they're going to race in. I mean, early on, you and I talked about, I asked you for your 200 freestyle time. Mm-hmm. And I showed you, did you ever swim that fast in workouts Mm-mm. for 10? No, not even 80% of that. Well, maybe 80%, but just around there. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how much slower than race pace we were going. But so many masters athletes, so many athletes in this endurance sports, that world that we're in, want to train at race pace. And they they still live under the mantra, in order to go fast on race day, you have to train fast. hmm and but there's no a lot happens. of that out
0: there. If you yeah. want to run fast, you got to run fast.
1: Yeah. You know, if you want to, you know, yeah, it comes across, comes up all the time. Mm-hmm. And how will I get better at my race pace if I'm not training at my race pace? Well, you've got to get more efficient at the other paces first right. in order to have the the setup and the ability to go fast at race pace. Right. The other thing is, and this might be in contrast to what Brian said, but if you can do the motions cleanly and technically sound at a slower pace, as you gradually dial up the pace, as you gradually get stronger, fitter, faster, you will remain technically sound, efficient, and clean in your motions as you get faster.
0: Right. That makes sense. I mean, I think Brian, I think he was coming from a place of saying, if you can run... You know, let's focus on you running 100 meters fast and then you can run it slow. Whereas you're saying, learn how to run it slow first and then dial up the, and dial up dial the speed up. and make sure that that, that that form it remains intact at the faster pace. As you
1: gradually get fitter and dial it up more and more, mm-hmm. speed-wise, fitness-wise, all those things. If you have good form and technique, that will carry that efficiency. Back to that efficiency, right? And
0: technique is what starts to go when you start to get tired, and you see those Iron Man splits, you know, starting to drop. I mean, the first thing is, you know, the 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 head, the neck, the the neck starts to go out, and the head dips down, and you get the Iron Man shuffle going,
1: and it's the form that falls apart. Everybody starts chariots of fire, everybody ends shuffle,
0: and that would actually play into kind of what Brian is saying, which is, you know, with some functional body strength you can maintain your technique when fatigued better and i think sure. that there's wisdom in that for sure
1: absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah. being having a strong core good stability especially body weight stability mm-hmm. is so key for endurance athletics
0: right because- and it and it's it's and i don't want to do it you know i'm busy like i'm the first guy to say i hate the i hate, I hate the gym i hate doing core work I hate all those stupid little box jumps and all that kind of stuff that Jesse Stensland tells me I need to do. And, you know, she's super strong and it's obviously I I, intellectually I get it and I'm on board. Like I understand that that is important stuff and I go, yeah, but I just want to get my swim workout and then I got to get to work. You know, I don't have time. And then that will be the thing that I cut that I cut out and I and I don't do. And I know and I when I'm and when I'm doing it, I'm aware that I'm making the wrong choice. And I still can't help myself.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I I, I laugh because I've, I've, you know how many times I've, I've committed to starting yoga at least. Yeah. At least going consistently for let's say five or six or Uh seven weeks. And just then evaluating never made it. Never made it even once because you keep, Putting it aside, and you either right. focus on the discipline, on the discipline. That you're going to be
0: doing, and and I feel duplicitous because I'll see people at the pool, and like yourself, coming from a swimming background and understanding technique, and and been swimming with proper technique since I was six years old, and I look at a triathlete in the water and how they're just thrashing the water and and muscling through it, and I go, if you would just let go of being fit and worrying about let just completely let go of training in the pool and just do drills for the next six months you know you will be you will it will pay dividends like you cannot imagine and then when it comes to me and the functional strength in the gym and all of that i can't like take that pill so like i i empathize with that struggle you know for sure totally get that um so you got to build that into my plan and hold (laughs) me more accountable for that stuff
1: those hours are your hours
0: yeah i know Well, we should get into a little bit. uh, We could put our propeller hats on a little bit here and we've gone an hour and 15. So I don't want to take up too much more of Chris's time, but um, you know, we're sitting in this hotel room and there's a trainer to my left right now where I just did this lactate test um, to, like I said, when we opened the interview to gauge what my fitness is and it goes to this idea of building the pyramid with a broad, you know, with a broad base so that 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 pinpoint top can be as sharp as possible. And, and, and when you, what happens is without trying to explain this in too much of a long form, you get on the bike, you pedal for, you warm up and then you do four minute intervals where the Watts increase by 20 or 30 Watts or whatever, depending upon the athlete. And you have your blood pricked, uh, during those every four minutes to evaluate the level of lactate in your system and your heart rate is monitored and, and all of this data is sort of compiled and at the end you go and you you increase and you increase and you increase until you reach failure or you're unable to maintain a decent cadence of between 80 and 90 RPMs and then with all that data you, you create a graph on the computer and you evaluate that graph and what you see is an upward slope that as the intensity increases, the resistance in watts increases, the heart rate goes up, the level of lactate in your system goes up. And you try to find those, that T1 and that T2, that aerobic threshold and the anaerobic threshold. And what you want to see, and I've said this before on an earlier podcast, is a very gradual upward swing in the curve, right? And where it kind of starts to really pitch upward at a, at a sudden steep increment those are. that's usually where you're, hit, you're going from your aerobic into your anaerobic, and then when you're hitting the wall anaerobically. Correct? How am I doing, yeah, I mean, How am I doing with this explanation? You're doing okay. <laughs> it's,
1: it's not that black and white. It's not right. like all of a sudden at a certain wattage or a heart rate, you go, well, right now I'm officially anaerobic. It's right. like we said earlier, there's glycogen and fat, and, and the energy systems are at play at all times. Um, but the longer we can go without there being any type of significant increase in lactate in the system, in the blood, as we increase that resistance, the better.
0: Right, and that's the point that I was getting to. And that's what comes from this sort of aerobic-based training is you push that curve to the right. Yeah. So the longer you can go before it starts to arch upwards, that is really a, the, that is where you see the efficiency. That is the marker of efficiency, right? Exactly. And the more gradual it increases rather than pitchiness, is how fit you are as you start to shift from one energy system into the next. So the more range you have in terms of your aerobic efficiency versus anaerobic strength and power.
1: You don't want that lactate curve going up every single Mm -hmm. time you increase the resistance. Right. You want to be able to gradually withstand those resistance increases, Mm -hmm. Um, even to a point where it's not really noticeable enough. And those are the diff. Those are the. That's the difference between the two markers. Basically, one is the onset of blood lactate accumulation, where it's spilling over. The body cannot process the lactate quickly enough in order for it to flush out. Mm -hmm. You know your classic lactate threshold, and then we also use aerobic threshold, where there's an increase in it. There's a, a there's a noticeable increase in lactate, but it's still being processed. It's still being flushed out. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's overflowing. And, and the good thing is at that number, especially for ultra endurance events, you can go for a very long time because the body is still processing right. it, to washing out that lactate.
0: Right, right and one of the things that that we realized today and it's february so i'm just getting started and i was sort of like my test is going to be horrible and all of this is that my my aerobic numbers were not that bad they weren't as bad as i thought they were going to be but there was very little room in between when i switched over when i kind of trant was transitioning out of my aerobic zone into my anaerobic zone before i hit the wall it's sort of like you know very narrow window there between so my, my aerobic work is good. It's really pushed that curve to the right, pretty decent for this time of year for me. Mm-hmm. But I haven't done any intensity work, any high-end stuff. So no surprise. As soon as I start to up the intensity level, I hit the wall pretty quick.
1: You call it hit the wall. Well, I call it becoming extremely inefficient there right. because you haven't spent any time there mm-hmm. in a calculated way. Because the usual response would be, well, then just spend more time there. Well, you need to build up to get to that point where you spend some time there.
0: And so, that the, time, so that the time that I spent there uh, pays off in the way that it's being want it absorbed. To. Exactly.
1: Right. Coaching right. and, and not coaching, but training, excuse me, is all about absorbing the current load you're given. If you can't absorb it, it's not training. <laughs> It's just going out and doing something.
0: Well, so for the average person out there who's listening who maybe doesn't have a coach, I mean, how do they know whether they're ready to absorb a workout or not?
1: Well, they'll know based off of intensity that they're also feeling. RPE can get you pretty far because if you say you're going to have an aerobic workout today, I want to just go aerobic. I I just want to build my base. It should be at a level that I often say should feel too easy. Mm -hmm. It should not be this... A lot of people use conversational pace. Conversational pace—it's
0: it's that could very be any wide, yeah, yeah.
1: Just bandwidth of uh, of description. It's more about you feeling as though the workout was not really a workout; it was your go all day pace. So, if right. you were asked in this sudden moment to do that same pace for another six hours or longer, that you had the appropriate effort, mm-hmm. then. Higher intensity stuff is where we get into the classic description of it should be out of short of breath, and it should be hard, and it should be burning in the legs, and all those things. But it's the aerobic aspect that most people underestimate how easy that is, right? Because they go just a tick too
0: hard, and 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 the discipline comes in because you want to feel like you got a workout in, and in order to do this right, you might have to feel like you didn't get anything out of it even though you actually did
1: how many aerobic workouts have we come back from and you haven't broken a sweat right it's frustrating right but it's it's effective it's it's there it's things are happening yeah and that's also part of the test that you were
0: you have to believe and you have to trust and i guess you know maybe for a lot of people you have to see some results before you're really willing to to trust but if you look at like all you have to do is like look at Tour de France riders mm-hmm. and how much time they spend it looks like they're just screwing around yeah. they're just out riding having a good time and they're not they don't they don't look like they're winded at all and, and that's and nobody the- sees
1: their time in South Africa or in Tucson or in southern Italy in the preseason with how easy they're actually riding. Mm-hmm. The average triathlete would ride up on them mm-hmm. and these are pro cyclists they can go way faster than us. Right. But they are at such an easy, relaxed pace. But also keep in mind, they only need to do that for three, four, five, six weeks because they sort of have a pretty big
0: role You think so? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I get, I get a lot of emails and tweets over uh, or, or people send me tweets, saying, oh, I've been doing my zone two work. I'm running it. My my heart rate is at 140 on all my runs and they're all proud. And, uh, and it, it's sort of a a misinterpretation possibly of, of what I say in my book when I kind of describe how I embraced this philosophy of training and how as a result of proper lactate testing, it was determined that the upper threshold of my zone two for running was about 140 beats a minute. Um, and and so how I, I had to kind of adhere to that and, and stay now, strict it's to that. It's now 125. It's one twenty-five on the run,
1: not on no, no, the run. I, we said one thirty. Sorry.
0: Yeah, one thirty. So now it's different. It's one thirty, right? So it's it's funny because people are saying I'm running at one forty. I'm like, no, you don't understand that. That was that was specific to me at my age, at my you know, for my body, for my fitness level. Um, you know, I cannot stress enough the importance of you figuring out for yourself your your proper zones. But not everybody has access to the kind of situation that you've brought to this hotel room here um to get a proper lactate test with this protocol that you've set up so how can somebody you know in a DIY way either find out where they can get tested in their area or find somebody to work with or figure out a way to do it themselves so that they know that they can feel you know relatively confident that they're training in their right zones
1: luckily there's plenty of field tests that you can do whether it's on the bike 2 times 10 minutes at 90% effort, for example, and recording heart rate before, during, and after, maybe resting a few minutes in between each interval. Mm-hmm. You can even do that interval up to 20 minutes. Um, that'll give you a good gauge at the track. You can do three times or five times, one mile repeats, depending on how fit you are A 10K pace. Again, recording heart rate, um, a lot of those field tests can be found on the internet and actually training peaks and those guys have some great field tests. Right, I use. usually
0: I usually refer people to Joe Friel's blog or, exactly. or one of his it's, books it's, or just get the training Bible, trial and Training Bible or whatever. Or, you know, Extremely and have,
1: effective right. and extremely close. Um, sure, we, I prefer lactate threshold testing because it gives me sort of more data and charts to work with over time. Mm-hmm. And it's not dependent on weather and wind and humidity and your diet and all those things leading into the test. It is a snapshot. It is what it is. You can't right. fake it. There's nothing. There's yeah. no tailwind. It's not downhill. Yeah, yeah. So it's a little bit more of a lab environment. But for sure, you can definitely get close with some of Joe Friel's um, field tests, which which are very good. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right, man. Yeah.
0: I think we did it.
1: Yeah. What do you did. think? Yeah, pretty good. What else do you want to
0: say to the amateur triathletes out there? Huh. Like, what do you see? What do you? Because you don't. You're honest. And you don't pull punches. You go to these races. You watch these guys out there, and and you're just like, Ugh, can't believe they're doing that. If they
1: only knew. Well, the pacing is a big thing that you brought up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, putting your ego in check on the bike. A lot of times, I say to people and potential new athletes or athletes that come to me they often say, well, I'm not much of a runner. Say, well, why aren't you a runner? What makes you determine that? Well, because my splits on the run are never as good in the percentile of my age group as my bike and my swim. Mm-hmm. I oftentimes just ask them, well, have you thought about slowing down on the bike in order to find <laughs> out what you potentially could run? Uh-huh. No. Or after working with them for a couple of months, seeing, actually, you are a runner. You've just always biked too hard because you thought you were a biker. Mm-hmm. and therefore felt you had to ride harder on the bike to get ahead in order to make up for the supposed right. weak
0: run. Yeah, it's a, a mental construct that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly,
1: exactly. And it, the, the, the nice thing about this sport is there's a lot of data to be quantified. And if you see you're in the top 10% in each of your three disciplines, you'll be doing fine. Mm-hmm. So focus on that percentile. And what is it gonna take? Do I need to slow down on the bike enough to have my run? I've worked with plenty of pro triathletes who never have the run they're capable of. I said, until we work on the bookends of this event, being the bookends being the swim and the run, Mm -hmm. let's slow down completely on the bike. Let's give up almost on the race. If you know you can all of a sudden run a 245 marathon on the back end of even an easy bike, and if you can swim, whatever, 55 or 50 on the Front end, Mm -hmm. we can always work on improving the bike. That's easy. Just insert more speed and more power (laughs) Mm -hmm. in order to not give up on the run. Give up the time on the run. You know you'll you'll find your sweet spot quickly enough. But even a pro triathlete isn't willing to do that. Mm -hmm. They're just the ego gets in the way of letting go in order to find out just once what I'm capable of running. So how is an amateur athlete supposed to? Think differently. And I don't blame them. You well, put a lot of time. There's, a more, there's money, more on the
0: line with the pro, though. There's more to lose. There suppose. is.
1: You could say there's more to lose, but I also find it interesting because they're not paying the same amount of money and cost and sacrifice with a full-time job and or a family That's and true. all that in order to go to these races and paying 600 $800 entry fees. But wouldn't you at least once like to know your potential? In, mm-hmm. in the individual or in part of the disciplines. So, a lot of work, but you can find out. Yeah, you can. Yeah. You can
0: find out. So, how, if people want to find out more about what you're doing, how do they do that?
1: They can just send me an email. Yeah. Yep. Most already do.
0: <laughs> go to AIMP a- Co- a- 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 I- I- M- com is your yep. is your main website. That's my right? main website.
1: And then, or just chris at AIM
0: Right and AIMP coach on Twitter. Yes, that's true. Yeah, you've been tweeting a little bit more lately than usual. What's going on? You're not
1: the only one to comment. On that. <laughs> I've you got a lot start, of time on my hands.
0: You got to start, yeah, like calling it like you see it on Twitter, man.
1: Yeah, I try to stay neutral as <clears throat> AIMP coach. Yeah.
0: All right, good. Well, thanks for being on the show. Thank you I for could ta- me. I could geek out uh, on this stuff all day with you, but I appreciate it. And like I said, man, I owe you a lot. You uh, changed my life, and you've made me not just a better athlete, but a better man. So I appreciate
1: having you, man. My pleasure.
0: All right, Thank cool. you. All right, let's do it again soon.
1: We shall. All right, peace. Peace. Thanks.